Hi, I'm Chris Whiteout. Welcome to Living It, the podcast where we join experts in the experience of being human. Be bold. Say yes to adventure. Say yes to living it. This is Chris Whitell. Welcome to Living It with Chris Whitell. I'm with my good friend, Stacy Kohut. We go all the way back to 1994, right? Yep. And then also the legend of Chris Whitell, I heard about in 1993. So <laughs> don't forget, you skied sunshine before I did. That is true. That is true that our nationals were, we went to Canadian nationals in 91. I think that was it, 91, because that was the year that I made the ski team. And then I went to Alberville the following year. So that was my first game. So in some ways, I was, I was two years ahead of you, which, which kind of makes a lot of sense because I am two years older than you, too. I got a stack of those, those events pictures. So I got a stack of pictures I can scan for you and send you. I've got pictures of you coming around a corner. In, 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 in uh, at Sunshine? Yeah, at ninety one, ninety two. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I was uh, I was not good then. I I was okay at at, at slalom. At slalom, I was okay. GS nah, a little bit, a little bit okay. Super G downhill, not at all, not at all. And it was Matt Stockford who was in my class. Do you remember Matt from? No, I came in in ninety four. Yeah, so he was there in ninety four though. Mm-hmm. It, yeah, British guy. And he actually had, he had a mono ski that was, uh, that was like formula one. Like they formula one guys had figured out his mono ski. Wow. And, and so when it got bumpy and nasty, like he was, he was one of those high level, just totally strapped into the chair. You know, you looked at him, you go, how can you possibly even turn in that? Yeah. Thing? But he just, he just pointed it. And what happened to him? Where did he end up? Where'd that Siski go? Where did all that? Where you know, it's, it's actually, it's funny. Cause I don't, I, I saw him either this last year or the year before. And he went into, he went into commercial real estate and, and actually stayed in a bunch of other things was helping to sponsor some of the GB athletes who are skiers oh, and wow. yeah, working in a, in a variety of different capacities, but he was asking about, about sit skis now. So, so it's kind of funny. He had that one that was so tricked out. And then I think he was skiing in a crash for a little bit. And I gave him some information on a Dynaxess, which is what I've been skiing in most recently. Yeah. How's the new sit ski? How's the new one? It's great, actually. It's really good. And, and this year, you know, it, it's so funny. Things I didn't really know. I mean, you grew up with such a, such a racing background, right? I mean, you're, your dad was racing dragsters and funny cars and yeah, grew yeah. up just throttle happy kid. Go, go, go. <laughs> and I didn't know anything about any of that. And it's funny this year, I mean, you know how I ski. And, and one of my biggest things is getting the ski, uh, you know, getting the ski out away from me so that I can get to a strong position. And, and what they did this year is they actually gave me a softer spring on the very top of it. So it was just so it was progressive, but it was really pretty soft on the top. And it let me get the ski out at the very top of the turn. And, and so I was in a stronger position, way stronger position. Wow. And I was like, ah, oh, I'm back. Like it was, it's been years since I, since I felt that good. I mean, I said to my brother, I was like, I feel as good as I've ever felt. 
I no. think about meeting you in 94 and going to the Paralympics in 94 and going all the way to Salt Lake 2002, but I haven't been on snow since 2003. Well, you know, the funny part is when you came on snow, you brought a totally different element to, to ski. I mean, I think you, you enjoyed the racing part of it. Loved it. Loved it. But there was another part of it too, where, where all of a sudden you came in and, and you made a little bit of noise in 94. Yep. But then by 96, you were one of the top guys in the world. I filmed, the that free, I filmed that free ride segment at the end of 94 when I got back from Little Hammer 2. And that ended up in all the rap movies. And that showed me in the pipe. And that showed me in moguls and all the other stuff that I love to ski. So it was great to kind of get in there. I talk about it a little bit with some of my friends, you know, like a lot of sports go through phases. A lot of sports will have the, the, um, the healthiest athletes will be the best. And then you have a whole generation come through and then maybe someone who's maybe not much of an athlete, but more of a daredevil. And I think I brought a bit of a daredevil thing to my element. I never considered myself like an athlete. I was more of a racer and I was more of a daredevil in the skateboard, BMX, motocross mold. And sports do go through cycles where, you know, all of a sudden someone with a bunch of natural talent comes along and they slot into a certain sport. And it's just that time and that era where, where they can make some waves. And that was me, I think, from, you know, 94 to 98 for sure. Yeah. And, and, and it's eventually we'll get to talking about what you're doing downhill mountain, mountain biking, which is, which is really your passion. But, but I want to talk a little bit about the skiing stuff, especially because that's some of what I share with you. But I think the daredevil part of it really was it where, I mean, you know me, I wanted to stay in contact with the ground as much as possible. I was happy to turn and all of a sudden you're skying off of these things. And it was, it was, I mean, I look at it in mono skiing. There were a few people who really changed during our time, changed the tenor of the sport. You were one of those people. Wesley was, was certainly one of those people. Daniel Wesley, who was another Canadian guy. I think uh, Chris Young, when he, when he just, I remember watching him because he, he took about a year almost, you know, almost in hiding. It was almost like he took a sabbatical. Nobody saw him until the end of the year and he showed up and it looked like he had a motor on, like he was just going that fast. I met Chris at the end of the 94 games at the closing ceremonies and he was on crutches. He was running in the two outrigger, two ski class, was he not? See why? He was. Yeah. And, you know, I, I can't mention Lillehammer without mentioning uh, what you did there. Um, four gold medals, um, the champion's champion. You showed us all how to do it. So, you know, daredevil be whatever, and you can put me in the moguls. But when I saw you execute 10 days in a row at that level, I knew the mental, the physical, the spiritual. Uh, I was blown away. And so you were always kind of like the bar for me is I want to win multiple races. I want to win multiple titles in the same week. Um, it's easy to come around every six or seven weeks and pop off a win. But man, like you set the standard. So you got my daredevil stuff here, but then you've got your stuff here, which is consistency. And I think I, I tried to marry them together for four or five years there. And whatever happened, happened. And, and, and you did a great job. I mean, the thing was, for me, I looked at it, Lillehammer was, was, a, was a pinnacle for me in a lot of ways, because in the downhill, that's before we had factored time. 
with different classes, I actually was the fastest mono skier in the downhill that year, which to me meant that it was about skiing. It wasn't about disability, which so much of the sport is about disability. Like, oh, well, he's, he, this is a guy who stands and he walks a bit. So obviously he's going to be faster than you. Yeah. But we found a way to figure out, you know, that that to me was, can I be consistent? And it was the consistency. I knew there were things that you could do that I couldn't do, but could I be closer to a hundred percent of what I could do on each turn? And it's funny that you talk about the consistency because we all have our jealousy, don't we? In, in terms of sport where I look at you and I'm like, Oh man, I remember you. I remember inspecting the course in Nagano and we're inspecting it. And Nagano is such a funny place, right? Because the beginner trail serpentined down the, down the mountain and went underneath the other trails. Yeah. And so at the bottom, there was basically a tunnel that, with the snow on top of it, really yeah. became a jump. It was a wooden bridge. It was, it was this huge bridge and everybody's kind of looking at it going, all right, like we're, we're almost there and this thing could be really funky. And you went and just launched for like a hundred feet off of this thing while everybody's inspecting it. Yeah, it was like, I, I don't know, man. I just wanted to straight line as much as I could for the first couple of days. And then I decided after that, if I could turn on that track i could turn on that track because i'd already straight lined it um nagano was crazy man that was there was a lot of dudes that were gunning and a lot of dudes that had spent a lot of time from 94 to 98 a lot of money invested a lot of time um i always thought chris that the six key class was the one class that could have probably pulled away in the mid to late 90s and gone on like a jeep tour or a paul mitchell tour we could have had 60 guys in Sitskis traveling around the world doing tours. For me, the sit skiing was almost a different sport. It was skiing for sure, but the shock and the aluminum and the body position um, and the technology involved and, and you know, the marriage of uh, man and machine together, uh, Deus Ex Machina, all that stuff. I mean, it was pretty cool. So when 98 came around for me, that was my peaking like you were so consistent with your peaking in 94, I ended up with three medals in 98. And I was really stoked on that. I, I didn't do what you did, Chris, but I got close and that was good enough. You, I mean, you did a tremendous job, but I also, I do remember the head games of the, uh, of you just launching it as everybody's inspecting. Cause as you remember, Japan was just, it was super, super high humidity. So yeah. it would just, everything would turn to slush. This was in March turned to slush, the Japanese army would go out and side slip it. And, and I think there were, there were a few people, there were a few tears as we were, as we were inspecting that course of people going, Oh no, I am never going to be able to turn on this. Cause it was like a skating rink with the backs of turtles kind of thing that you're just rattling around. And you take a look at the, at the medals um, from that event and for the, for the Canadian team, at least, um, the two guys that basically did the best were Whistler guys, Mark Ludbrook and Daniel Leslie. And they skied on that mushy Pacific Ocean snow. They skied on that their whole lives out here. So they knew which wax to run. They had the right texture. Uh, they had everything dialed. Those guys were – I had to tip my hat at the end of the games to those two guys too because they were a little bit sneaky about what they were up to, but they had a, a different pattern, a different grind on the base. And they were really tuning for that type of snow that they knew they were going to get in the gano. 
and they really did get it. And I remember in the, in the GS wanting, wanting a windshield wiper. The second run of the GS, I mean, it was hard for the first run. And then second run is starting at one o'clock or whatever and kind of go through the woods there and, and going through the woods. It's, I mean, I, I felt like I was just covered in snow. I'd make a turn and I'm just covered in snow and you think, okay, I want to be able to see this and all that stuff. So, so with the skiing, what was your, let's, let's back up a little bit. Cause, cause it's, you, you grew up with this whole, with this whole go fast kind of mentality, go fast, go big. And, and it, is that accurate? That's what I saw from the outside. No, it's, it's totally accurate. I mean, when your dad drives a top fuel dragster, those things are basically a ticking time bomb. And they're right in front of you back in the 60s and 70s. All the engines were in front, not in the back. Um, so very daredevilish, very um, flirting with disaster, you know? and my dad had a rule as I was growing up that I could try anything I wanted on my bike or my skateboard or my skis, but I had to wear a helmet. He was a stickler for the helmet and he's also a stickler for the chest pad and the, and the shoulder pads and the knee pads and stuff like that. So I was able to go fast as a young kid and crash and get up and walk it off and then go fast again and just be covered head to toe in all the gear and, and, just looking full factory, but not because of the look, but because of the protection. And that served me very well all those years. Um, sometimes I say it's like I was training to be a sit skier and I didn't even know it. I ski raced a little bit as a kid. I raced a YZ80. Um, just the whole kind of thing just kind of came together. Sitting in, in a single plane, you know, with the sit ski, very much like a motorcycle. So everything I had as a kid and the family with my mom and my dad encouraging it and pushing it. And, and Chris, don't think that they didn't feel bad for the first six months or whatever, after I broke my back. Oh, do we push him in this or do we let him go down the wrong road? Is, is this our fault for him being hurt? Um, that got cleared up right away. We had a good talk and then we just moved on for there. And, you know, kind of drag racing was the original extreme sport. So I've been doing extreme sports and I've been raised in extreme sports family for a long, long time. And before that name even existed, extreme sports. Now you ended up getting hurt in what was kind of an extreme sport. I know a bit of the legend of it. And, and I'm, I think I heard a bit of the legend from you, so I'm not sure if it's true or not. Yeah. What's, what's the actual story? What happened? We had a playground set in our yard when we were kids, and we used to be able to swing up on the board and flip off and do a backflip and land on the grass. Okay. Then you go to the big park up by the community center where the hockey rink is, and it's 1976, and the dude with the long hair and the feathers and the jean jacket and the cutoff shorts, he does the full wrap around the swing set while his girlfriend's letting his smoke for him or whatever it is. Full headbanger, full 1970s. So... I get up the gumption one day that I'm going to do what he did. And I stood on the board. I'd been through the flip before as a kid and I got up and as I got to the 12 o'clock position, the chain had some extra slack and the board flipped out and I was just kind of in space. And I was like, Oh wow, this is not going to be good. So I kind of just relaxed. Use my experience as a motocross kid and a skateboard kid. I just kind of relaxed myself and just waited to hit. And when I hit, we all know what a scorpion is from when your feet come over your back in sports, you do a scorpion. Uh -huh. Well, I did the suitcase. I did the wham. So my feet came out like this way. 
And that's what broke the back. And I knew right away something was wrong. And I've been through other situations like this at the skate park and stuff. I broke my femur before. Um, and then I checked the one femur and it's still solid. I checked the second femur, it's still solid. I give my bum a little wiggle and I can feel some play on my back and then it clicked as like I broke my back. So I had to administer first aid myself because all my friends were panicking. Um, just, you know, give me some air, I'm going into shock. Don't move me. Oh, we'll go get a piece of plywood and we'll put you in the back of the truck. And we'll, no, 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 you're gonna dial 911 and all this stuff. Um, please pour out the glass of wine that I was drinking. Pour that out so we don't get too confused about what really caused this incident. This was ego and this was like being a show off. It wasn't a glass of wine or a beer that caused it. It contributed a little bit to me being slack, but whatever. And then I got really lucky with the ambulance guy. He came there and he said, wow, uh, you've broken your back. Um, you can't feel your legs. Um, but you're a skateboarder and you know what kid it's not like we saw on TV growing up it's totally different you're gonna do fine um, you're gonna be in a wheelchair but I'm sure you're gonna handle it and yeah he gave you and all this stuff in the off. ambulance really yeah. yeah yeah he said kid don't worry it's not like you think in the 70s with the chrome chairs and all that stuff it's 1992 it's changed don't worry kid you'll do fine you're a skateboarder you said to me Really? And that clicked because, you know, being a skateboarder in the mid 80s or early 80s, you got laughed at a lot. You got looked at a lot. You wore pink shoes and yellow pants and you bleached your hair out. And so you're rolling down the hallway after 10 days of being in intensive care in a wheelchair and you're like, okay, I'm getting the same looks as when I was a skateboarder. And now I'm on four wheels. And so let's just run, let's just run with this. So you're sticking out. Now, I remember you telling me that you had actually been successful yes. doing it once before. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You have to have the right size. The problem was when I did it before, I was 16 or 15. And now I tried it at 21. And I was just too tall. I couldn't get the whole thing to actually come around. So once I got to the 12 o'clock, I stalled out. If it would have been a little bit smaller, I could have really pumped on the downside, like you do it as a skateboarder, as a kid on the swing set and got that out. But I, it just, maybe that's where the, the, the glass of wine or the beer came in is I misjudged the size of it. Um, but I just got back from being in California for a month, skating backyard pools and ramps and stuff. So I was in full show off mode for sure at that point in my life. Wow. And, and so did you not miss a beat then? You said your parents were nervous, but yeah. did you not miss a beat? You're like, all right, you know, people are staring at me like I'm a freak and they've been doing that for my whole life. So what's different about that? I had some really good cries. I had some really good nurses. I had some amazing family members. I had Sarah with me, you know, she was very adamant that nothing had to change. That we were still in a relationship. That was great. Um, I think, from then, yeah, I, was, I think I was the first person that they ever saw in the hospital that had the hat down like this and skateboarder and like already going down the hallway the first day doing little skids and stuff. And so I, again, it was like a different generation, a different time and place. And I just kind of slotted in there. I mean, I knew I didn't want to be the guy that spent his whole life walking around on crutches at like one kilometer an hour and and I, I didn't want that and and so 
yeah, I, I took to the chair quite, quite well. Is part of that mentality that you were used to different vehicles? Yeah. I mean, it's kind of, it's kind of, it's kind of your medium in some ways, right? It's like you're doing the same thing. So is it skateboard, BMX, motocross, uh, funny car, you know, I mean, whatever, dragster. Yeah. Yeah, wheelchair. It's like, oh, throw a wheelchair at it. Like it's it's the same thing. Concepts yeah, the same. We put some water down in the hallway here during um, when the nurses are not away and they're not checking on what you're doing. Let's put some water down on the floor and let's see who can do the biggest skid sidewards. Or we'll have a wheelie contest or something like that. Um, so I tried exactly like you said, not miss a beat. I think I dropped in my first half pipe. Must have been October. I broke my back in March and I dropped in my first half pipe in my wheelchair in October. It so was seven like a months. foot ramp and I just dropped in. I, I already learned how to go down a, a three stairs. You know how you go down three stairs and if they're spaced, it, it's quite easy to do three. Right. And I was like, wow, the ramp is almost the size of the stairs. So why don't I just try it? And I did. And I actually manualed with the front wheels up all the way down the transition. And then me and a bunch of friends kind of looked at each other and were like, whoa, maybe, maybe I'm onto something here. Wow. Yeah. Did you feel vulnerable at all? Did you feel fragile or, or not? Um, I had some people come visit me in the hospital that were already been in chairs for 10, 15 years. And I was warned not to treat myself like glass. I was warned to not be rough and tumble, but to, to still be doing and moving and jumping around and transferring as much as I could helping with bone density. Um, don't treat yourself with glass, like, like your glass. Um, if you do fall out of the chair, you know, learn how to fall out of the chair and do a bit of a dive roll. Um, so that, that was a big part of it. Wow. See, that experience was, was completely different for me. Really? I mean, it really, it, it was, it was almost like we were glass, you know, and it was, yeah. I mean, I, yeah, it was, it was funny because, and so much of it was what they were worried about, right? That, Hey, this has happened to you. Yeah. So the biggest risk is that you're going to become an alcoholic or a drug addict. Yeah. And, and you're going to forget to, to cath or whatever. And then you're going to have kidney issues. And then, you know, you get all this stuff. And it's uh, so that that to me, it was it, it took a while. It took seeing other people took getting into sport in a lot of ways. And I saw that, you know, I saw some of these people doing stuff because I thought, I went through the hospital, like I was a superstar in the hospital and, you know, come out of the hospital. Yeah, I know, I know everything. I mean, it's, it's just, it, it is what it is. And, and then I see people who are competing and have been competing for a long time. Like when I first went mono skiing, I couldn't carry my ski on my lap or anything. And I did a, did one of these with Jim Martinson and I saw Jim Martinson. This must've been would it have been 89? I think it was 90. I think it was 90. I'd gone to nationals. I'd made nationals. And, and these, you know, a bunch of these guys beat up on me and everything. And I was like, okay, they beat up on me, but they're not great. Like I know enough about the sport to know that, okay. And then I saw Martinson, he got off the lift and he was making these turns and his, his bucket is like, you know, an inch from the snow and he's jumping off everything. And I went, I think that's when I exhaled. Yeah. I went, okay, so it can be what I expect it to be, you know? And, and I think for you, you're coming at it with a similar kind of thought is that this is, this is art. 
this is creation. This is, this is going big. Like what's your, what, what do you look at and say, this is my objective. What do I want to do? Me personally? Yeah. When I'm riding these things, when you're riding things, when you're skiing, when you're on your, on your mountain bike, whatever, there's a, there's a hundred percent situation where it's, I'm really, really selfish. It's all me, 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 me. I love this. I need this. I need the adrenaline. Part of me who's a showman likes the attention and needs the attention. But really, I've been saying it since, well, since I dropped in that half pipe in October, right after breaking my back. If I entertained you, if you had a good chuckle, if you thought about what I just did or what you just saw for maybe a half second and tried to interpret it differently, then I've done my job. I'm here to entertain, educate, and then inspires the last one. Like for me, it's not about inspiring, it's about entertaining. And if you find something inspiring about how I entertain you, then great. Um, but everyone who's a racer has to have a little bit of the showman in you. And I know you've got it in you. And I know all the people I've ever met in a Sitski have a bit of a showman attitude. Um, I do remember when I worked at the skateboard park when I was 19, we rolled in the, the half pipe, the vert half pipe in an office chair that had six wheels on it. We rolled in it down the channel and then went up the other side. So I'd already had something to do with sitting down in, in the chair. Um, so that was an easy transition for me to get to starting ramps. But I do remember this one guy, uh, Darren Grouse, who was the first guy I ever saw. I'd only been in the, in the hospital three and a half months. Uh, first person I ever saw in a wheelchair wearing jeans. First person I ever saw in a wheelchair wearing a normal shirt. First person I ever saw in a wheelchair who had a really minimalistic wheelchair, not even brakes on it. And he said, hey, skateboard kid, I've got to go into the skin clinic, but I'll be right back. I want to talk to you. Like, okay. He comes out, and I followed Darren out of the, to the parking lot of the general hospital in Calgary. He opens the back of the Chevy Blazer, and there's a brand new 1995 model shadow monoski. Oh. Check that out. And I'm like, whoa, that looks like my YZ80. I know what to do with that right now. I, I, I got, I, yeah, yeah. And that was it. That was it. Darren Grouse changed my life that day in the parking lot. Really? Because he gave you, he gave you an avenue, gave you the tool yeah. to go forward he, and, and create. He showed me what he just purchased for himself. And I realized that I could go purchase one of these on my own. So I signed up for learn to ski classes. And on the second lesson, actually, I had my own sit ski. So a lot of the instructors were scratching their head going, this is this kid's section, second lesson. He's already found a flat ski. And we showed him how to push up from you know, the side hill. And he's already got a sit ski here. And we're like, well, when did you get the sit ski? I'm like, well, I ordered it like back in October. And this was like December. And I was there sitting in the sit ski, you know? Yeah, oh, I think I got to change my spring. I think it's a little stiff. I'd like some more preload. And these guys are all looking at me like, what's this kid talking about? And I'm like, it reminds me of my YZ80. That is awesome. So you were that, just, that's you were. My whole, that's my romantic introduction to, to sit skiing. See, I got lucky in that my coach, because I was ski racing in college, my coach organized it. So they bought me a shadow monoski. Yeah. And so it showed up. I'd never seen one. I'd never seen anybody in one. Yep. Just 
got into it and said, okay. And, and I went and fell over and fell over and fell over that first day. And, but you know, same kind of thing where you just get going and you go, okay, this is it. But when I saw Martinson, I was like, it, it really is skiing. Yeah. This isn't having to settle for something else. You could do full tip to tail railing on those skis for sure. You know, full rail, tip to tail, just as good as anyone else. Didn't you ski for like a year or two on the college team in a sit ski? I did. I did. So, so I was actually on the team, I think for three years and actually captained the team my senior well, year. And I caught wind of that right away, Chris. And I was like, here's a dude that's already fully integrated, mm-hmm. fully integrated. And that, that's what really stoked me was you, you showed you could be fully integrated. And I did more, I did more training with able-bodied teams in my sit ski career than I ever did with our national team. I got to race a couple NORAMs at Lake Louise. Did you? Really? Awesome. I was, I was training with the, the able-bodied dudes. And I got that from you because you were in college, just a member of the ski team, but fully integrated. It was, you know, and I went and did a few of the national or the regional, regional fist races and things like that, where it was kind of funny because I had had my accident the year before and then started racing. And so my points hadn't gone up that much. So I still qualified, you know, I couldn't ski those points, but I still, I still qualified for some of those races. And, and that was actually, that was back when you're, when I was trying to figure out, cause I was skiing against these guys who beat me by so much, you know, I couldn't figure out if I was getting any better or not or whatever. So I was literally, our nationals were at Stratton mountain, the first, my first nationals. And then I went to some fist races and raced on that exact same hill. And I was like, okay. And it was basically like, you know, I mean, you know, every course is different. This is a GS. Every course is different. It might be a little bit, there's a margin of error, but I was so slow at the time that, that I was kind of like, okay, well, I am actually 10 seconds or, I mean, I was like 30 seconds, I think faster than I had been at nationals or something. So something, it was, it was a big chunk of time. It was one of those where I'm actually getting better. I think I'm getting better. But the integration, that is, that is part of it, I think, is it for us. And part of it for us as athletes, and, you know, I think that, that one thing is, is it's how we look at ourselves. Yes. And then how we look at, how, we, how other people look at us. And then how we think other people look at us. And some of that is shocking people. And, and, and I know that you did a fair amount of that with, with just some of the big air. I remember you telling me at one point that you had, you'd been doing some big air with like Bodie Miller or something like that. And you'd been out jumping him. Yeah. We got to rip through the train park after our first GS run in the morning at Norquay. And we're, he had a speed suit on and I had my full racer kit on and yeah, it, it was fun for a while there. The jumps were great. When that started coming around to the, to the hills, and it wasn't just like side hits like when you're a little kid and they're actually building purpose jumps. That was good. And it was fun to, to, to shock people, like you said, and, and to be a bit of a show off. And you opened his eyes too, right? I mean, he looked at you and went, wow, you're, you're a badass. Well, and the whole thing was, again, back to what you were talking about and back to, to the original, integration. You know, completely looked at completely different because I was making, I was willing to make that shift to try to integrate. There was so much of a tip of the hat and so much respect for just showing up with your own program and your own backpack. You know, you set up your area of the race and you do your inspection and you're part of the whole group. 
but it's it's visibly um, very easy to see that you're all on your own. But the human element is is the full integration, Chris. It's I have some other ski stuff that I want to talk about, but this is it. It totally. I was watching one of your videos, right. and and this is so this is a line. Yeah. At, at Whistler, yeah. so A-Line, and, and I think it's an Aussie guy who's doing the commentary. Yeah. And at the beginning, it's up there and it's like, oh, Stacy, he's the only guy in, in the four-wheeled class. And, you know, he's, he's so motivating and inspirational for such a group of people. And then there's a moment where you come out of the forest and he goes, whoa, he just cleared the jump coming out of the forest. And he got a whip in it, you know? And, and, and I think, you know, that's the stuff that you go, hold on, hold on. This isn't, this isn't like straight out of the hospital. This isn't wrapped in bubble wrap. This isn't, this is like, this is for real. It's a real sport. And you got him, you got him to open his eyes and go, Oh yeah, no, we're, we're giving this saccharine kind of thing. Cause you and I have all been involved in the, in the, you know, the newscasters who are like, Oh, it's a heartwarming story. Yeah you know, Stacy had an accident on his swing set and, and then, then he got a mono ski and it was so uplifting and his family loved it. And, and you're like, no, I'm going fast. What do you think of, of what back to skiing? What do you think of what some of these guys are doing now? Like the, like Josh Duick going and throwing, throwing that backflip. The backflip by Chris was amazing. We had a kid up here for years and years. It was doing it into a bag. Um, but not getting the full rotation on onto the the snow. Josh took that whole thing to another level. Again, he was integrated right away, training back with the freestyle kids in his sit ski. That's where the whole impetus came. You know, that's where the whole idea, we can get this going again. There's that one dude from Japan that's doing the 180s now. Um, I love watching um, I love watching the X Games when they did have sit ski monocross. I thought that was great. Um, I think sit skiing right now is in a really good place. I just sometimes wonder if um, maybe maybe some of us get out of it too soon and 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 don't have a chance to stick around because it it just it Chris, as you know, it's an expensive expensive sport. It is expensive, no doubt about it. And I also I watched. Uh... One of the ones that blew me away, I watched the video of, of uh, Trevor Kennison today dropping into Corbett's. Yes. At, at Jackson. And you just look, and it's got to be, I don't know. I mean, he's got to be, at one point, he's got to be 30, 40 feet off the ground, right? I mean, yeah. he landed and bounced and had to go 8 to 10 feet off the ground on the bounce. I know. Yeah, I see that stuff, and I'm like, you know, even if I did have two Sitskis sitting in the basement, no, I'm turning 50 this year, man. I can't see myself dropping Corbett's. I can see myself snaking into Corbett's and slashing it up and being surf dog, but I'm not going to come hauling around the corner like he did, punt himself off that little kicker, and then bomb in 60 feet. And then he, I've experienced it in sit skiing where you almost you, you porpoise he almost went under the snow and then came back up and i was just blown away i expected the ski to be broken i expected the sit ski to rip in half i expected that full tomahawk that we all saw in the 90s you know from people that had bad crashes but he handled it like a champ and 
a part of me was like, I want to email this guy. And what ski are you running? What bindings you got? Like, how is this stuff just not blowing up? It is. And it's funny because back in our day, yeah. we felt like if anything was happening, we knew about it. Yes. Like we knew the best people like, okay, yeah, Stacy does that. And so-and-so does this. And, and it was all within the same kind of realm of understanding. What some of these guys are doing right now is just, is just blowing my mind. I mean, I saw a guy. Do the Misty who, Flip on the, the cork off the tabletop? Yeah. He does the cork Misty Flip BMX and comes backwards? Yeah. Yeah, dude. Crazy. I used to sit at home and dream of that. So, oh, maybe I could do a flat three. Or, But you talk to some of these guys, and I'm realizing, just like Josh, you realize some of the first times these, they try these tricks has been at places like Woodward sure. and the, the camps where they got the foam pits. So good on them for, for using those modern facilities to help them take themselves to that next level. Um, Josh told me once he had the half rotation into the, into the foam pit, he knew he had it. He just had to take it to the snow. Right, because obviously on the snow is not a good place to learn that. We've all taken those fly swatter crashes where you catch the outside edge and you're, or you're, you know, somebody's trying to do a helicopter, trying to do a 360, you know, 270 doesn't work out well at all to land. No. And those foam pits definitely help. And the airbags help. I've seen guys in Siskis do the airbags too now. So yeah. I think it's great. And I also think too, there's been a lot of like, um, there's been a lot of extreme sports centers have kind of popped up. You've got like this foundation or the high five group or this group or that group. And they're all, so it's not like back in the nineties, like you say, when it was just like, we knew it was going on because there was Europe and we'll, we'll include Japan and all that Europe or over there. And then they had, you know, the West us. Now it's popping up all over California and Woodward and the high five foundation. So I think there's a lot better platform for some of these dudes to start pursuing that type of activity. And, um, yeah, I think it's great. It's really cool to see it. It really is. And, you know, I felt like our responsibility in some ways in our generation was to try to stand on the shoulders of those who went before us, right? Yeah. To try to try to improve upon what they were doing. And, and some of that is technology too, right? Just seeing yeah. the difference in technology. A lot of us were on the exact same stuff. I mean, it was like, Standard issue. Here you go. Here's your here's your sit ski. You can tweak it a little bit here and there, but now you're getting so much more of the technology, and it's a technology that you see on the mountain biking side. So I actually just stop you before we move to the bike. I actually think that if someone can figure out the sit ski and include a bit of a fairing that comes up, there's part of me that thinks that a sit ski could be the fastest on the hill like a speed skiing kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. Okay. You talked about the two-stage shock or the two-stage stage spring. Sure. I think there's room for even a three-stager or even a different way to get it suspended. I think with a fairing, a little bit of a cover, I think the, the skiers could basically go 175, 200 kilometers an hour down those big chutes in France. I think it's a possibility. I always thought that with the monoski that, that there was a chance that we could be the, among the fastest, especially in the disabled ranks, you know, in the, in the, in the adaptive ranks, because yeah. we had the mechanical advantage. Yes. And, and, and I think one of the limiting factors is that we really have one joint in yes. making a turn. We just have the hip joint to be able to create that edge angle. But 
but there, you know, I, I think that there is a really distinct possibility that with continued progression, that, that, that you could be, that you could be among the best, that you could ski over stuff, that you could get travel and, and these kinds of things where you're just, it's all bumpy and you're skiing it like it's, like it's totally smooth and everything's perfect. If you could just find someone in the boardroom at Kawasaki or someone in the boardroom at Honda or Suzuki or one of the big dirt bike manufacturers or one of the big MotoGP manufacturers, if you could just kind of harness some of the, the, the stuff that's available there, you know, like casting parts and quick models and stuff like that. I think one of the automotive or one of the, the motorcycle companies could take the Siski to the next level. I want to ask you a question. What do you think about the new ruling in sit skiing? where there's a production rule now, from what I understand. The Sitski has to be available to the public for consumption. You can't have these ones off and you can't have these, these rogue, rogue designs on the hill. Really? That's what I've been told. I, I was wondering if you've heard that. Or I had not heard, heard that. That is really interesting. The production rule now. Wow, because it, it was, uh, I mean, that, that was kind of the standard when we were back then, I mean, granted, you know, we had the off the shelf stuff, but then we had, who is it like a, that Austrian guy, Paul Blaschke or yes. something like that. Yeah. I remember seeing him, I got on the lift behind him in Lillehammer and he would, he was a double amputee. He would yeah. jump out of his monoski, sit on the seat, pull his monoski up and have it. And then, then he was actually like, that was the easy part, right? Because then at the top, He'd go and throw the monoski and jump back into it. And you're like, whew, all right, like let's, you know, the, <laughs> cross your no. fingers, man. Hope you land in the right place. But uh, no, he, was a, he was a great skier too, Chris. He was an amazing skier. No, he really was. He really was. And I think that that's, it would, it would be unfortunate. I mean, a la like a, like a Daniel Wesley as well, right? So Wesley in his monoski, he was a double amputee as well. But he, he was basically like a short person like a short yeah, he, standing skier. Well, he did build skier. an ankle for 2002. He had the main, the main pivot point in the Siski, but then he also had a bit of an ankle so that the, the bottom part of the Siski would move. You know that Daniel never even skied when he had legs? Really? He was 13 years old when he lost them. Everything that that dude did from the time he started Siskiing, that was all him. I was not like you or me where we're drawing from being a 10-year-old ripper or – we were on the, you know, chasing coaches down the hill when we were 12 or 13. That was just him and the machine coming together. Pretty gnarly stuff, man. Always a tip of the hat to that dude. No, it was, it was absolutely amazing. And that is because I felt like we had a huge advantage. Yeah, uh, oh, be being, being uh, ex-ski racers or having time spent in the gates or, or ripping on a ski. Yeah, for sure. It was because I feel like for me, it was about a feeling. You know, there's a feeling of making a turn, of doing it the right way. And when you know what that feeling is, when you do it, you go, okay, I did it. Now I have to do it again. One of the nicest things I ever did as a human being, but one of the worst things I ever did as a selfish racer was taught Daniel how to throw that ski up on edge and arc a clean arc. Like, uh, I remember Gary saying, hey, Gary, Grab Daniel and Scotty and go over there, or Stacey, go, go show them how to arc a turn. So I did the old, you know, you go straight and you lean into the hill and you come back and you see how far you can come back up the hill. Well, I did that with them for two runs and that was it. They had it dialed. But had I not shown them, because they never skied before, because that's what you learn when you're 12, right? 
right on the outside skin and and so all those things i just drew from able-bodied and and showed them the best thing i ever did as a human being the worst thing i ever did as a racer <laughs> as a competitor exactly you made him better well that's that was actually my worry in some ways because i i was kind of credited with at, at a camp at a ski team camp i was not even on the team yet they invited me and i was the first one to really arc a monoski turn you were the guy that everyone used as the model you had the turn you had the hip you had the angulation uh we all noticed how your head was level with the ground but everything else was like that i mean you were the first one that we could mimic there was no one else that we could mimic before you because it was all over the place and coming from the 80s and the 70s i did a lot of my learning from dirt biking and motocross from from not from videos and youtube but from pictures in the magazines yep so once we saw you we knew we could mimic that and so thank you chris i know Again, well that was a nice thing to do but too to bad your you point. Too bad you couldn't have kept your secret until you got to the race. And that's that's exactly what I wanted to do. I thought, oh, you know, I can teach these guys who have more ability than I do. You know, I mean, it's back to the disability thing in some ways. And so then I had to keep trying to reinvent myself. And which is the great part about competition, right? It, yes. Is that you guys went and did something. And I'm like, okay, now I got to figure out how to get faster and catch up to these guys. Yeah. In, so, so you've gone, you've gone from skiing and now you're doing the, the biking. So it's four wheel biking. Can you describe, and we'll show a video as, as well, but describe your, describe your bike. Like, what do you, what do you have going on? You know, you know that feeling when you're in a sit ski and you got two hands out front and they're, you kind of, I used to call it the power triangle. You got your head and you got your, well, that's the power triangle. Well, picture being in that position all the time, but now you got brakes. Mm -hmm. So picture if a Sitski had brakes. You know what I mean? Which wheel is braked? Is it front wheels, back wheels? Uh, front, there's, uh, I activate the, the two front wheels with uh, a lever on my left-hand side, and then I activate both back brakes with my lever on the right-hand side. At the same time. So you don't have a left and a right brake. No. No. Some of, the European, some of the European guys will set up different, so back brakes over here brakes here okay so you're in this machine the cockpit feels very good uh, if you get the bike sized properly and you spend some time with your body position i know you did on the six key and me too you can get into the power position all the time so now that you're in the power position you've got to let the the wheels underneath you start to work again a lot like sit ski if the head's still and the body's still and there's stuff moving underneath you you're getting a clean arc same thing as the bike. If the bike's working underneath you and you're looking ahead to the next turn, it will do exactly that. So it's a lot about getting the bike set up for your size and a lot about getting tire pressures and PSI in your shocks and also what springs to run in your shock. But it very much feels like a cross between sit skiing, motocross, ATVing. And if you've ever seen a desert truck when they fly through the desert and the wheels are doing that and everyone sure. just so yep. calm. That happens a lot in the four-wheel bike. You just got to chill out and, you know, it takes time. It takes years and years and years, but just get used to, you know, being in that, being in that little bit of chaos. Chaos happening around you and you're just being quiet in the middle, as quiet as you can. Just Also that, unfortunately, Chris, that's the one thing that when you're in the learning curve, 
the learning curve is so steep on the four-wheel bikes, you're strapped in with four straps. And when you go down, you go down hard. You and I have both crashed into 60, probably what, close to 100 kilometers an hour? Sure, yeah. And for all intents and purposes, you know, we tumble, we slide, we go into the V-netting, we get up. You crash in a four-wheel bike on the rocks and the logs and all that stuff, man, even at five, 10 kilometers an hour, it's, it's not good. Um, when I first started biking and John Davis, who was the guy who started this whole thing, I'd show up to a race and there'd be 10 of us. And now there's probably two or three of us around the world. Chris, the consequences are so high and I understand that it takes a certain individual to accept the consequences. Um, I was building the bikes, I was selling the bikes, but we just couldn't sell enough of them because it's, it's dangerous. It really is dangerous. I, and I, I don't know, man. I, I, I used to have a problem admitting that it was dangerous, but now the last couple of years, I'm like, yeah, it's pretty dangerous. And sure enough, last July, July 9th, I cased a jump that I jumped the whole time and came out the front. I'm fully strapped in. I went down. I broke my arm for the first time ever. I snapped the tip off my radius. I broke all the blood vessels here. I screwed up my arm. I put two dices in my rotator cuff. The arm was paralyzed for a week. That wouldn't have happened in sit skiing. I would have tumbled and skidded. So, yeah, I took my first really hard beat down in the bike last summer after almost 18 years or 19 years of riding my first hard beat down. For a lot of people, their first beat down comes in the first year or the first couple of years. And that, well, you know what it's like with, with being a sit skier. It's not what puts you in the chair. It's not how you handle that. It's how you handle the next injury after <laughs> determines where you're going to go with your sports, especially if that injury is caused by a short sport. So you blow a rotator cuff out or something and you decide to keep sit skiing. Well, that shows that you're into it. So with the biking, it's hard to take that slam and then get back up. And, you know, some of these dudes, they got jobs, they got wives, they got children. They can't be crashing their four wheel bike. They got to, you know, is it cost prohibitive too? They're pretty expensive, aren't they? They're pretty expensive, but unlike a Sitski, you don't go through one every year. You know, if you're really racing a Sitski hard, you can twist that frame up pretty good by the end of the year. With the bikes, you know, you, you go through wheels, but the mainframe, I probably got, oh, I've got easily two over two million vertical feet on the frame that I'm riding right now. Chris, inner tubes are are six dollars. Sure. A brand new pair of vocals is a thousand. Um, to get a pair of K2s is almost the same, right? So it, the four-wheel biking has actually been cheaper for me than, than, the, than the, the sit skiing. Wow. Now, what, is there a part of it that you, really, that you really like? Is it the whole thing, but, or is it the air? Is it sliding the turns? Is it, is it uh, picking the line? Is, what, what is it about it? You know, you just rattled off all those things. And I had seven runs yesterday. The bike park isn't open here yet in Whistler because of COVID. So we've reverted back to old school. We're, we're shuttling trails right now. So I had seven runs yesterday. And, you know, the first 10 things was skid, rail, wheelie. And all of a sudden after skid, rail, wheelie, I mean, everything just, I go full zen at that point. I'm like, ah, I'm in my happy place. I did a skid, I railed a turn, I got to wear my fancy costume, I got my helmet on and my goggles and 
I'm all stoked because of my sponsors and all that stuff. And it takes me back to being, you know, eight, nine, ten years old on the motocross bike again. Um, but I would be a liar if I didn't mention the I word, and it's not uh, inspire, it's integration. There's a certain element to what I do being fully integrated that I really, really, really love. Um, it, it feels right. Um, I've won a couple of the four race, um, four wheel bike races back in the early 2000s when there was 10 of us, I'd win a race and it felt great. Um, but there's a part of me, Chris, that would sooner come in 39th out of 45 in my 50 to 55 age group racing against two wheel bikes, you know? What, what, so what's that all about the integration? What does it, what does it mean to you? What does it, what does it do for you? Well, you know what? I know who really appreciates it is the sponsors. Mm -hmm. The sponsors love it. They don't want to see you hiding away at some small resort uh, in some obscure ski hill or some small race where you're not seen. Every one of my sponsors loves the fact that I'm just not selling products or promoting products to other people in the same sport, but I'm also all those two wheelers, all the families, all the kids. Um, yeah, it's, it's really hard to explain. And I don't want to use the word normal because I just think that's a really disrespectful word for me to use, but it just feels proper. Um, when you're at a, a, a race and maybe you're the only guy there, not the only guy with a disability, because don't forget, there's a lot of guys missing an arm or missing a leg that have been integrating into mountain bike racing for decades. Sure. It's just people like myself with the four wheels, you know, you, you get there and um, it, you just feel more like, yeah, I, I belong here. Well, when one with the sponsors, you are the most visible guy out there, right? I mean, you are one of these doesn't look like the other. No. But I think part of it also, just in watching you and, and, and imagining what's going on, is that you are, you're representative of, of what they're trying to do. Like they're out there going, okay, I'm, I'm a little scared going through the, going through the start line. Like this is, this is going to be it. But then I see this guy and he's getting after it. And, and it's like, we as human beings, we, I think we end up learning from each other so much, right? That it's, it's like, oh, okay, well, Stacy just showed me something. And I was thinking that this was going to be a nasty part of the course. And he ripped through it like, like nothing. So I better get my act together and get after it. And I think that that's, you know, it's interesting because, because we talked, talked about skiing too. And the integration part in skiing is that we're sharing the same mountain. Yes. Well, I remember you, you were involved with like some GS races and stuff. Were you not fully integrated into, into stuff in the mid nineties? Oh yeah. No, I raced, I raced a lot of able-bodied races. I mean, I raced on the, on the college circuit the whole time in a mono ski. Okay. So let me throw that back at you instead of, you can't use the word normal because I do think it's disrespectful, but, but what appealed to you the most or looking back now, what was it about that integration that got you so fired up or that made you feel like you were at home? Or maybe you didn't. I don't know. Tell me. There were a couple of parts of it. So I saw Diana Golden at a ski race the year before my accident. And, and, and to me, she was the greatest representation of what it meant to be an athlete. That she was a scary thing. My wife hates this analogy, but I think it works. And I think you'll like it. She was like, like uh, 
like uh, Jason from Friday the 13th, you know, the slasher movie. Like, yeah. like you think you've killed him in one scene. Yeah. And you think you're safe and you're like, oh, this is good. Okay, we're fine. And then he comes back and he's still chasing you. And that's what she was like. She was like, I'm going to fall down, but I'm going to get up and I'm right. going to keep going. And it's so easy to have an excuse wow. in these sports, right? Because it's, it's pretty black and white. Either, either you won or you didn't. Or you're the best loser. Or you're the best loser. Exactly. And it's, and it's, but it's just black and white. They write your time up on the board or whatever. I mean, back in, back in my day, it's probably all digital now, but, uh, but they wrote your time in, in Sharpie marker on the, on the board. But the other part of it for me was that they were the ones who were doing it the best. And if I was going to copy somebody, I wanted to copy the person who is doing it the best. And, and it's funny, one of the guys that I ski raced with or that I went to college with, this guy, Nate Bryan, who, who actually climbed Kilimanjaro with me when we climbed Kilimanjaro, he was our doctor. But he was one of those guys, he was like 5'7", 135, raced the downhill in the world championships, raced on the World Cup. And he like brought tears to your eyes. You watched him ski and you're like, oh, that is so beautiful. Like that is exactly how you want to do it. And I'd gone over... Sarah and I were racing at Winter Park on the weekend, but the prior week I'd gone to the NCAA championships. My brother was racing and Nate was racing and a bunch of these other people were racing at Steamboat. And I watched them and we had the Super G and, and, and I came down and that's back when we raced in classes, right? So we raced in classes and I came down and, and I finished and Sarah had raced before Sarah Will, who, who was in a, in a monoski, who is, who is the best woman in a mono ski for a long, long period of time, most of her career, and also beat the vast majority of men, like five, one, 90 pounds was, she beat everybody. And, and- We call it and, a mountain bike because we call it getting chipped. So if some girl smokes your butt, you gotta fess <laughs> up to it, man. I just got chipped. And Sarah, she would chick a lot of the dudes back then. The vast majority, and so we had this, uh, I don't know if you ever raced it at Winter Park, but we raced the Super G and it kind of came off the top and it went over Norwegian, which is the steep pitch, which is often just sort of all bumped out, but they, they groomed it and they went, and went over Norwegian. It was just, it was a great race. And, and I came down because my class was going first. It was sort of the LW10s, the, the most disabled of the bunch, then the 11s and the 12s. And I finished and Sarah was like, uh, she was like three tenths behind me or something like that. And, and at first I was like, uh-oh, like we're in trouble. Like we're going to get killed. We ended up with all the other monoskiers. Nobody, I don't, I don't think anybody was within six seconds of us. I mean, it was just absolutely amazing. And Sarah said to me, she said, well, I'm trying to ski like you. And I was like, well, that's your problem because I'm trying to ski like Nate. You know, and that's a, so if you have the better people, like keep chasing those better people. And I think that's where the integration is. And that's where, where the respect comes because we're doing the same thing. We're trying to do the same thing. And that, that to me is, is the people who actually see it, see, see that, see that effort, see that intensity, see the, you know, see the innovation, see whatever, you know, the, the, the technical part of it to try to figure out how to do it well. Well, and there's also for me too, like, I know I'm not going to beat the best two-legged skier that I'm racing that day on a GS race. You know, I mean, I'm not going to beat someone racing a Noram, but I'm so OCD when it comes to racing and I'm so hyper competitive that I want to be the guy 
I want to beat all the racers to the lodge. Then I want to beat all the racers to inspection. These are all the able-bodied people. I do it biking too. Then I want to beat all of them for my second lap. Then I want to be the first person in line for training. And I, I'm always trying to like let them know like, all right, you're lucky. You're lucky I'm on four wheels, man, because I got all my bases covered here. I've got clean gear, brand new helmet, goggles are fresh, brand new shoes, 15 minutes early. I've already done my stretching. You guys aren't even warming up. I've been doing circle eights for 20 minutes, you know, and then whatever it happens, like I come in 38th out of 42, two guys get a flat, one guy crashes. But in my head, I'm like, okay, this is what I would be doing with my life had I not broke my back anyway. So it's great to be here and great to be in a good mood. Do you feel, feel a responsibility to represent when you were at, at one of those races? Are you representing everybody else? I think sometimes, yeah. And I don't think it's just, like you mentioned earlier, I don't think it's just other dudes in chairs. I think I represent anyone that's a little bit scared to get to the starting line. I used to do a lot of public speaking in the 90s, Chris, and one of my lines was, you'll never finish a race unless you get to the starting line. You can have all these goals and all these things that you want to achieve, and you can write them down. And, but if you don't get your butt to the starting line, it's not going to happen. So I think I've been a really good motivator and a good example of just getting your butt to the starting line. I've had a lot of women come up to me and say, I started racing the Wednesday night race because I saw you at the Wednesday night race, and I figured if he can get up there and do it, that I can do it. So that's been cool. I, I've really enjoyed that. I've enjoyed um, showing people that they can get to the start line if they want to. You just got to put your name on there and shout out everything else. Shout out your friends talking smack about you or shout out what you think your other friends are going to think about you. And it's you and your bike and the racetrack and a clock. That's it. What's so scary about that? Exactly. But the doubt is the thing that prevents you from even starting, right? And it's, it's baffling for me to, to think about how some people spend their whole lives with that, that amount of doubt inside them and inside their head and their heart and their soul. And it's a little bit sad for me. I mean, I got, I use this word all the time, Chris. I'm one of the luckiest dudes ever. You know, like I met people in wheelchairs in 1975 because they crashed the dragster. So that was already like normal to me. My parents were amazing. My, my mom had me when she was 21. She's more like a friend than she is a parent. My dad's a, my dad's a beast when it comes to racing and, and being technical. So it's, it's just so lucky, so lucky, so lucky. Lucky to have people in Calgary that allowed me to get into integrating. Just lucky to have people that were like encouraging me to keep integrating. So I've been very, very lucky with my path. And I just want to make sure that people realize that yeah, I mean, I'm really stoked that I've got this natural talent, but I've also been very lucky that the environment that I've been in has been so nurturing. Mm -hmm. Giving you that opportunity. Now, yeah. you bring you bring a joy and you bring a fun to it. I mean, listen, watching some of your videos today, there are a few times where you're you're sort of like singing as you're going down. It looked like. <laughs> do you know I that you're doing that? The hazard theme there, do 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 do. Remember when Bull and Duke they go over the jump and that'd be their horn. Oh, I've been doing that since I was seven years old. Yeah, Friday nights. Yeah. Friday nights back in the 80s. That was, yeah. You're not yeah. the first person, Chris, to recognize that childlike enthusiasm and that childlike giddiness that overcomes me when I get on the ski hill or when my sit ski is feeling good or my bike's fitting me properly. And 
it's really become a part of my body and it's extension of who I am. These pieces of equipment, it's, you know, it's, it's man and machine, it's, it's cyborgs. 1.0, you know, it's, we're in these things. We cannot do this without this machinery. And when I get to a point where I feel so comfy, I just go back to being five, six, seven years old. And people can recognize it. I don't know if they, if they're like crazy hippies and they can feel it, but they're like, this dude is, yeah, like he's having a great time. And that control is important. What is, what, what is the definition of bike control? I think feeling one with your equipment. I don't, I don't think it matters whether you're F1 or you're racing the 400 meters in, in a wheelchair at the Paralympics or you're, you're skateboarding. You've got to feel one with your equipment and you've got to have that connection to the equipment that allows you to perform at a level where you're actually just doing it. Um, we used to, I used to always say little mantras. I, you guys were big on this on the, on the U.S. team too, but one of my things was um, don't act, react. Don't go into a turn and, and look at yourself from the third person. Go into a turn being in that, in that person, you know? So don't act or don't react, but act. Act part of, of being in the now. And I think when you're able to be in the now, for me, that's when I'm my most happiest. And the bike allows that. How does the, how does the style part come into it? Because the thing is, I mean, you're, you're in the air yeah. and, and you're doing your cross-ups and you're doing all these things and stuff like that. It's not necessarily, it's not making you any faster. No. Well, scrubbing does make you faster. When you scrub a jump, um, okay. you can never really do that in skiing. I remember once at Breckenridge, I pre-jumped a jump and I threw my outriggers on below me and you yelled off the chair, yeah, cut! And I, it was like more like a downhill move, you know what I mean? Right. There was a little bit of that there. But in biking, sometimes when you come up sideways, you're changing the trajectory of your jumps. So you're actually spending more time on the ground. And, and that does help. But back to being lucky, you know? Where did the style come from? I just, it's lucky. It's... It's, it's me opening up magazines as a six and seven year old and, and reading like dirt bike and motocross action and watching on any Sunday and, and, and I don't know, just trying to emulate my heroes from back in the day, like Bob Hanna and those guys with upper body positions and stuff like that. And then being a bit of a showman, of course, that's where, where the style comes in. But then I have to be honest, I'm lucky to have some of this, natural talent to do a couple of these things it's not like i'm saving the world i'm riding a bike and making it look half decent but it's it's what i'm good at and it's what the universe has given me so the universe has given it to me so i, I gotta use it i got i gotta apply it who are your heroes now do you uh, still have heroes i mean you you had heroes growing up but you still have heroes now don't you i do I think my, my heroes now are more real people that aren't like musicians or aren't actors or they're not athletes. You know, the real heroes now is like the single mom raising three boys and making it happen. And they're all doing different things. One guy's an artist, one guy's doing uh, music and the other kid's skateboarding. Um, or for me, it's like just being impressed by how much passion someone has for, for their life, no matter what's stacked against them. So it's more like everyday people now, like meeting people that have been through so, so, so much on an everyday level and just being like, whoa, dude, like 
you carry yourself or, or she carries herself really well for being through all that stuff that I've learned about or that they've told me about. So my heroes have definitely changed. But I still have heroes. Well, a lot of that, I think, is that, that those who have seen the most adversity really have the best stories to tell as well, right? The most we can learn from them. Yeah. Uh, so, so also, so I've, I've seen sort of your, your deal as far as like, you've got your, you got your bike in your, in your little storage unit kind of thing. And you you live on the second floor, your apartments in the second floor of your, of your place. So you have to go down the stairs and then back up the stairs in order to, in order to make it happen. But one of the things you said, I mean, you certainly said that you have, you have a team. I mean, you have a team that's helping you yes. get your equipment together. You, you have a design team, I'm assuming. I have friends that are definitely in, into designing and helping for sure. And, and what, what, kind of, what kind of team? What do they do? What, what are their roles? Well, you know, they're all friends first. Mm-hmm. But they all bring something to the table that I, I don't have. Um, it could be my friend Robbie the welder. He's a skateboarder and a welder. And I know that Robbie... I can call Robbie at any time of the day, any time of the night, and say, yo, Robbie, I just tore apart my wheelchair. I just tore, tore, tore apart my four-wheel bike. I got a crack in the cromoly. I'll see you in 20 minutes. You want me to grab you a coffee or whatever? So he's definitely part of the team. You got to think, Chris, I go through 16 wheels this season. I have to have someone that can build me some wheels that can withstand what I do. I've got to have my sponsors. I've got to have the guys down in, in California at Troy Lee Designs, sending me gear. I go through gear like crazy. Imagine how many pairs of gloves I go through, you know, <laughs> ripping the elbows out of all the shirts. Um, my sponsors and I take a lot of pride that I do a lot of training and I'm always out there working. But then on race day, I look like I've just come out of a, a brand new package, like everything's brand new. That's not accident, that's fully planned. Um, Oakley, the same things, um, vans, sponsors. Um, um, and local people too, like, Hey, Stacy, um, I saw that you're doing this and doing that. Can I maybe introduce you to somebody that might have a networking opportunity for you? So my team has built around me. I've, I've assembled a group of people and friends that allow me to be as independent as possible. I heard you say that, which is, which is one of the interesting, and that was, I, I feel like monoskiing initially, I didn't know if I'd ever be independent where like when I was skiing at school, one of my buddies, one of my teammates would get the, we had a little, it was our own little college ski area kind of thing. It's a family ski area. And we actually had a, a library in the lodge Whoa. and that's where they stored my mono ski was in Whoa. the library. Whoa. So, so one of my buddies would grab that and bring it outside and hold on to the mono ski. And I jumped into the mono ski. And then once I was in the mono ski, I was generally generally okay. I mean, I had a few, few crazy times and everything, but to get to the point where you're taking it from your car and you're getting to the mountain and you're getting into it, you're assembling everything yourself and you're in, you're out and you don't necessarily need anybody like that. Independence is something that is super cool and especially super cool in a wheelchair. Right? So, so what is that? What does that independence mean to you on the mountain? I mean, what do you, how do you t- talk us through a day? Talk us through like when you're going to the mountain, what is it? What do you do? What does it look like? Well, you know, I'm up at seven 30 on a regular day, a regular training day at the Hill. Don't forget. I still training to this day, Chris, I train like there's a thousand four wheel bikers out there and they all want to get me. It's, it's all I know. It, it's the only way I can 
I just, I have to be a part of the process. I love the process of racing, the practicing, the training. I'm in, so in love with the process that I'm out there doing it and there's no one even chasing me. Up at 7.30, in the van by 8.15, get to the hill, unload the bike, start getting dressed, then time to hit the bathroom, spend a half hour in the bathroom, do what you gotta do, come back out, get dressed, first in line for first chair. I will pick one or two runs in the morning. And the cool thing about mountain biking, Chris, is you can appreciate this, is it's kind of like skiing was in the 70s. There was a lot more room. And when you drop into a mountain bike trail or track, there's no cross traffic. So if you know the person that dropped into you is already three minutes ahead, then you don't have to worry about making your technical free ski turn and as you come around there's a group of people there or there's a lady coming across the trail so it's really directional so i'll pick one or two tracks for the day i'll do an inspection on my first run 50 percent because you don't know what's happened right sure and the second run is at 75 then i'll bang three at 100 and then on my sixth will be my cool down and then i'll go do lunch lunch water get back in the bathroom suit back up take a couple caffeine pills i don't drink coffee anymore but i do take caffeine pills great for the metabolism all of us athletes love that little extra kick in the afternoon i'll pick a separate trail i'll do the exact same same methodology 50 percent inspect it one at 75 two or three at 100 one cool down back to the truck Really? That's, that's from 8.15 and I don't get home till, I don't get home till four o'clock. So this is a full-time job. It is. It, I'm doing three and a half days a week. I'm riding my bike from uh, middle of May to the middle of October. And I'm working three and a half days a week at, at my jobs I have here in town. And of course, in the winter, I go back to, to full-time working at the grocery store, working at the, the auto parts store. But yeah, I mean... With the amount of, of support from my sponsors and the equipment and the tires and all the stuff that I have, there's no excuse that I can't be out there. And I am out there three and a half days a week. And I'm, yeah, it's, it, it, it's, 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 it's a job, but it's, I love it. I mean, I would do it if I didn't have sponsors. You know what I mean? I would do it if I, if I had old gardening gloves and a Kentucky fried chicken bucket on my head, I'd still be out there doing laps. It's the job that you've chosen, exactly. Or, or maybe it's chosen you. You'll have to figure out chicken. I do like being the person you, you talked about earlier, but I do like being that person that can represent my subculture community, which is the disabled community. I like being able to represent my community in, in that environment, in the mountain bike environment. There's no engine. It's all human-powered. I'm not a big fan of all these electric bikes that have come out and stuff like that. I really think biking needs to be human powered. So that's my kind of like contribution and my, my, my work towards like setting that as a bit of an example. I think that sounds great. Now it's, I, I'm glad you also that a little while ago you mentioned about the wheels because I was, as I was watching your videos, I was like, how many wheels does he go through? So you said you go through 16 wheels. Yeah. Four times four. Four times so four. those wheels are made for 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 two wheel bikes. Now I I don't break the rim, Chris. Nothing happens to the rim and nothing happens to the hub, but it's just all that side load on those spokes 
Right. At a certain point, you can only retention that wheel so many times, and then it just starts coming apart. When it starts coming apart and you get to the bottom and you got like three broken ones, you know you only got a couple runs left. I got an amazing wheel builder who actually has worked with me over the years to, to get it so that we are, got our wheel building down to a science, but it's still, you've, you've got to get them rebuilt. How does this independence thing work in the, in the, in the regular world? I mean, it's one of those things that I think that we, you know, we as people in, in wheelchairs are, are looking for, you know, looking to be independent. You know, I mean, I, I think there most days I don't encounter much of anything that I can't do. And, and, the, but how do you feel about that? Like, what's the, what, what's the feeling to you if somebody's like, Hey, you know, let, let me grab the door for you or, or this kind of thing or. Well, I think I've had three phases. I think I've had the original phase when I was just like, no, there's no way in hell you're going to open that door for me. I'm going to get that door. And how dare you think about the fact that I need your help. And I'm going to show you, you know, that's two years after breaking your back. Then you mature a bit, you get a little bit more older. I didn't lose that though. I still wanted to be the guy that always opened the door. I remember racing a lady to the door once she was walking and I was, I was going to open the door for the lady and she was going to open the door for the dude in the wheelchair. And it was like, boom, we both collided. And it was hilarious because I was doing what my mother and my grandma had taught me. Be a, a nice boy, be a nice gentleman and open the door for the ladies. Don't be patronizing, but just do it. And she was like, oh, I got to help that guy out. That's with a big, but I tell you what happened. July 9th, last year, Chris, I crashed my bike and I broke my radius and I paralyzed an arm. And for the first time in 28 years, I needed help. I had to ask pure strangers in the middle of downtown Vancouver. Hi, I'm in a wheelchair. You can see my cast. Can you please help me get out of my van into my chair can, and then reverse can you please pick me up and put me in my van because i can't hoist myself right now with a paralyzed arm and a broken rotator cuff and so it was like a, i don't want to say a humbling but man did it ever affect me like it, it's 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 changed me forever um it's kind of funny. I, I got the cast on and then the cast comes off after six weeks, but you can't put any weight bearing through it. So he asked some guy in the street in Vancouver, yo dude, can you grab my chair from the back of my van and can you bring it around here? Well, he's thinking like Ted Bundy stuff, right? Or John Wayne, like, this guy's going to open up the back. I'm going to get clobbered. Who is this guy? Sometimes it was better with the cast on because people knew I was telling the truth, but I will never, ever, 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 ever get upset if someone wants to open the door for me or if they want to help me do something and i've found a whole new way to just say no thank you rather than create a scene it's so what did what did that do what did it do for you i mean because it's, it's a vulnerability right i mean to to sort of admit your vulnerability i think so I think it, it did. And I think I got a better appreciation for someone who maybe is a low level quad or a really high level para or someone that had a stroke. I think it made me a better human. I think it made me a better, um, I think it made me a better representative of, of my subculture. Maybe not 
as big a chip on the shoulder, always got to be so hardcore, you know? I, I still will say no thank you to people, but it's a completely different program. It's, it's changed me. Having to get picked up by a pure stranger and lifted in the car, and, you know, maybe you just happened to have a little bit of gas that day and you just farted on a complete stranger's hand, and they have a giggle and you have a giggle, and you're sweating so bad because it's only been 10 days since the crash, and you're on painkillers, and it's, it's horrible, man. But, yeah, it was... It happened for a reason, put it that way. What did it do for them, for the people who helped you? And that's one thing I, I never admitted that I ever, I didn't want to see somebody. Um, I didn't want to see somebody with their, with their like, their chin up and their shoulders back thinking, I just helped the disabled guy. Aren't I great? You know, you see it with when the guy's out with his girlfriend too, right? Like, oh, hey, honey, check this out, man. I'm going to help this dude out so you think I'm a cool guy and you know, it'll be good for me later for points. I get that. But yeah, it was like, okay, I need to get help. I'm going to get help. And, and it's just, yeah, it's just a fact. It, right. it, it totally changed me. It, it's been, it's been, I feel so much lighter too, Chris. Lighter. Yeah. I just feel so much lighter. I'm just like, wow, I accepted the help. I feel lighter. I feel happier. Does it, you know, before was it, was it a worry that if you accepted the help that that confirmed that you were less of a person? Was that some of the worry before? No, I think what it is, I think you and I are from the same generation where we know the power of the media and we know the power of a picture. A picture is worth a thousand words. Mm -hmm. And I never wanted to be that guy that someone turned around and saw someone in a wheelchair getting help when he didn't really need it or he was just taking it. I didn't want to be that guy. Um, I didn't want to be that guy. And I didn't want to be portrayed in the media as that guy because you and I come from the generation where we were the first dudes to start getting some mainstream coverage in the magazines and in the papers and in, in the trade magazines. And you always portrayed yourself as a person first person with a disability second when I saw you modeling and stuff so I never wanted to portray myself as someone with a disability first I wanted to be a person first so I think a lot of it was image it was it was an image and I know how powerful images can be and I never wanted to be that person giving the wrong image to a person with a disability don't forget I learned so much more from the young people that I hung out with for the first couple of years on the ski team that were born with their disability I never learned with people that had a disability later in life. I learned how to carry myself from those kids. I learned how to um, act around, you know, different people. I learned how to show respect. I knew when to show boundaries. But I learned how to deal with my disability. And when I mean deal with it, I mean manage it in, in an athlete, athletic way from all the kids on the ski team from the U.S. and Canada that were born with a disability. Really? And so what do you think was different for them? I mean, it's a congenital thing. It was, it was the way they were their whole lives, but is that what's different or, or is it? I can't imagine going through puberty in a wheelchair, dude. Even to this day, I can't imagine being 13 or 14 years old and making it happen. Yet all those, those dudes that we skied with that were a little bit younger us, the generation before that were still a part of the teams, puberty, 
high school, junior high school, first boyfriend, um, first love affair, uh, going to university. And they had to carry themselves a certain way. They had to, to present themselves a certain way. And I think I learned more from them than I ever did from, from any of the sit skiers. That's interesting. Yeah, I think that looking back on it, we had, we had the benefit in some ways of, of having had a history before, before we ended up in a chair. It's like, well, this is who I was, which, is, which can be something that you can hang on to as well, right? This is, this is who I used to be. And it's like, well, I hope that helps you sleep well at night because who are you right now? You know, it's like, what are you, what are you going to do and how do you move forward? And I think in some ways that's, that's the question to you is, is what are you doing how are you how are you moving forward and 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 what are the what, what's the next step for you i think my next step is just stay integrated i i am i'll be turning 50 this year i'm really healthy i don't eat meat i'm a vegetarian i don't drink alcohol i don't smoke tobacco i only eat apples and carrots that's the most sugar i have i'm gluten free i'm wheat free I'm, I'm whatever it is to allow me to keep being Peter Pan and keep being the young Stacy that always can shred. That's what I'm going to do. So I, right now, am actually sharing more things. And I always knew this phase was coming. We're entering the George Foreman phase, dude. Remember when George Foreman came around out of nowhere in the eighties and he was like, I'm going to fight and I'm 40 years old and I'm going to beat this guy. We are now because 50 is the new 30, right? Sure. So I'm, really trying to help a lot of people who are in the mountain biking world or friends of mine take a look at maybe take a look at your food i mean you're almost 50 years old man you can't eat all that stuff all the time not if you want to keep shredding so nutrition's a big thing food's a big thing attitude's a big thing staying lean is a big thing these are all things that i can pass on and show my able-bodied counterparts in mountain biking how to do it because i'm already ahead of them I'm never going to blow a knee out in, in the four-wheel bike. My knees are good. I honestly think I can ride at a fairly high level till I'm 70. Till you're 70. Really? So another 20 years. Yeah, I think I got 20 more years in the bike. 20 more years in the bike making people go, oh. My dad was 74 years old. And I took him up in the bike park two years ago, and he rode the two-wheeler at 74. You know, we were on the green trails, we were on the blue trails, but he wrote it. I swear, Chris, 50 is the new 30, man. It really is. And that's part of the objective, though, isn't it? That, that getting, getting the gaping mouth, the, the jaw drop, like, whoa, like, that's what you just did. Yeah. I think I've actually put that down on a couple um, applications for jobs. Like, what's your job right now? I'm like, professional draw, jaw dropper. And they're like, well, what's that? I'm like, well, I just drop draws for a living. They're like, well, how, how do you do that? I'm like, watch this. Jump out of the chair, up onto their desk. Hey, how are you doing? You know, or, 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 or their office for the interviews on the third floor. And they can't even understand because there's no elevator in that building. How'd you get upstairs? Well, I'm a Jedi. I worked it out. Well, it's a good way to, to stand out from the crowd as, as a as an interviewee for a job, that's for sure. I think being being a jaw dropper is really important to me. And that goes back to being an entertainer. You know, the first time I saw something that was entertaining me, it was like, first time I saw Evil Knievel, I wasn't inspired. I was just like, oh, 
that's incredible. And then, you know, later on you get inspired by it. But yeah, like, well, yeah, jaw dropper. That's, I mean, it's funny you talk about Evil Knievel because that is a technological change as well, right? I mean, Evil Knievel, he was like Fonzie, right? I mean, he's like, he's jumping buses on a road bike with minimal travel and you guys back in 91, 92 and 93 on those old shadows and that whole first generation of sit skis, man, those things were crazy what you guys were doing in that stuff. Yeah. You and evil shared a lot because you shouldn't be able to do what you did on those POSs, pieces of shit bikes or, or those sit skis too. Like those things are bolted together with screws. They really were, but, but it was, you know, I look back on it and there was, there was a purity to it. I mean, it was, you could, you could feel the ski, you could feel the ski and, and it was, everybody was on the same, the same shock. And it was, it was a oil, oil filled shock. It was, there was nothing, nothing romantic, nothing technological. It was just a coil and an, and an oil filled uh, shock. And, but but you could get out there and you, you could actually feel the ski. And I mean, it's, I, I say to people all the time that skiing is where I forget that I'm sitting down. Yeah. And I'd imagine biking is the same way for you as well, where you're sitting down, but you're not, you know, you're, you're just moving. You're in the moment. And I can't deny the fact that even during the first six months after I broke my back, it was apparent that being a skateboarder was a very big benefit because now I was on four wheels all the time. And as long as I applied my imagination to what I was doing that day, I could go down the sidewalk and do a skid up on a bank and then come down and drop off the curb and then go over into a 360 around the lamp post. But I could be creative in my wheelchair and it didn't take long, Chris, till I, I landed on that magic thing that you just said. I, I forgot I was in a wheelchair. Were your friends, were your buddies jealous? Were they like, hey man, can I, can I try this? Can I get into it? You, you look like you're having way more fun than the rest of us. Not my friends, but the nine-year-olds, the 10-year-olds that were meeting me when I was 21 and 22. Dude, that's not fair. That's fun. I want one of those. You know, it's like, yeah, well, careful what you wish for, kid. Cause, mm. But yeah, I mean, very comfortable. Very, and again, I use that word normal about, you know, about a half hour ago. But yeah, normal. You forget that you're disabled. And that's that magic time, Chris, when man and machine meld together. Whether it's a sit ski, a wheelchair, a four-wheel bike. It's that's the whole magic. It's the Zen. It's the magic. It's the whole stars and stardust. And it's all that magic stuff. And it really happens. What are the elements that allow that to happen? That allow you to be at one with a piece of equipment? Because I think you're making a, a really, a, a, a really cool general statement as well here. Well, I mean, I do believe in the fact that we are the first cyborgs, and I do think you're going to have people in 100 years running faster on two artificial legs than any man could ever run on two human legs. I often think that what's going to happen too, Chris, is once you get 100 years down the road, you're going to have people saying, oh, I want to cut my legs off. Pardon me? I want to cut my legs off. I want to be in the Olympics. What's going to happen when the Paralympic athletes are better than the Olympic athletes? That's only 50, 60 years away. Well, you see it in wheelchair racing, right? Yeah. I mean, those guys started racing in those E&J stainless steel, 60, 65 pound wheelchairs. And it was like, okay, well, yeah, you can come in our race, but 
you're just going to stay at the back and that's fine. I mean, I talked to Martinson this week, his first marathon he did in 303, which is, which is pretty fast. I mean, he was getting after it. He was, he was trained, but that's a seven minute mile, just below a seven minute mile. Now fastest, fastest marathon in a wheelchair is 118. So that's 20 miles an hour, sub 20 mile or uh, sub three, sub three minute miles, right? I think in Brazil, in Rio, Chris, there was a couple Paralympians that were visually impaired that ran the 400 quicker than the Olympians ran the 400. You'll have to go back and check, but there was two or three people that would have won a medal in the Olympics had they been allowed in the class. It might be. I mean, I'm not positive about that. I don't think that's happened yet, but I think it's- I'm going to check. I'm going to check. I think it's, I think it's happening, you know, and, and, and so in the wheelchair side of it, you've definitely seen it because that's, you know, I have friends who say to me all the time, well, I'll come for a jog with you. And I'm like, really? Like, I don't think you want to, I don't think that's going to be fun. Like we'll, we'll warm up at like, you know, 12 miles an hour, like five minute mile kind of thing. Like, do you, do you want to do that? I know I didn't want to run that fast. That's for sure. You know, you're talking about what, what you asked, what makes it, you able to, to integrate with that type of stuff? Yeah. This might sound a little bit corny or a little bit too new age. That's okay. But I believe I think there has to be a pure, honest joy. And there has to be L O V E. You have to love it. You have to love being in the moment. You have to love being in the now. You have to love the sport so much that you know you're in your happy place. You have to love what you're doing so much that you're actually extending with your imagination. I believe the word's called propio perception. And it's the ability of humans to extend through mechanical devices so you can actually feel what your tire's doing and you're touching the object with your tire. A lot of the trials, motorcycle guys, they talk about it a lot, how they'll actually make themselves be the, the knob on the tire that gets them over. But it's the extension of the body. It's the sex machine, God in the machine. It's the, it's, the, it's the melding of man and machine together. And I think when you come from a place, and this sounds a little bit new agey, but when you come from a place of love and joy for, for these activities, then it's really easy for you to integrate not only to the equipment, but to the scene and get right back to who you were and what you were doing before you broke yourself. And I'm assuming love for yourself as well. It has to start with yourself. If you can't love yourself, you can't love anything. So if you can't come to grips with your new body or you can't come to grips with what you've done with your life, this goes for able-bodied people too. If you can't come to grips when you're 15 or 16 and start actually loving yourself, then it's going to get a little bit sketchy in your early 20s. And you know the gift that would you'd like to get is having that like love for yourself. So I used to talk to a lot of kids, Chris, I'd, you know, coast to coast in this country. And I'd always be like, it's got to start with self-love. It's got to start with your self-love. And I would ask kids, how many of you in the room right now in the gym love yourself? And not everyone would put up their hand. Only like two thirds of people would put up their hand. And you could see the wheels moving in some of these kids' faces. Like, why, why don't I love myself? What am I doing that's not true to who I am or, or what I want to do with my life? It's a self-consciousness, but I think you're also, I mean, it sounds like you're talking about, I mean, it's almost a really Buddhist kind of thought, right? That, 
that's an integration between you and the, and the environment and your equipment and where there really isn't any separation. Have you ever had a moment when you're up at the top of the hill and you're like two or three guys away from getting in the Stargate and at Sitski and you're looking around and you see the mountains and you see everything and then you're like, okay, all proportion here. Like this is very important what I'm doing right now, going down the hill in a Sitski, but there's all this beauty and all this stuff around me and I'm thinking about all the people that I love in my life. Have you ever had like a moment where you're like, almost like you transcend the fact that you're getting into a Stargate and you can actually move into that Stargate in a, in a different mindset? Have you ever had that? I, you know, it was, it was part of my meditation in some ways was this idea of, of kind of being, in some ways kind of being small. Being, being infinitesimal, you know, and, and you're, you're surrounded by this because it's so easy to assume that we are so important and, and to bring our self-importance. And then, so you're bringing that to this race and what I am about to do is so important. And the objective is to free yourself up, isn't it? To free yourself up and let yourself create and let yourself have fun. And when you do that, that's when you're actually good, right? That's when, when all the muscles are working in concert, when, when things are doing what they're supposed to do, where, where when you're in your head and you're thinking, okay, this is what I need to do. And I need this angle here to be able to make this happen. And it's like, you're, you're doing math problems, you know, as, as you're, as you're trying to, you know, and you're a robot, you turn yourself into a robot. And it's like, I have to do this as opposed to what you're talking about getting into the flow. And I think, that was always, always one of the, one of the reminders, you know, try, don't take yourself too seriously, which is a really good one to remember. And it's hard. I've often tried to tap into the fight or flight system mm -hmm. where when you're getting ready for a race and you're just coming into the start gate, like you're either going to be fighting or flighting. Either way, you want to tap into an old system that us human beings have as being hunter gatherers and all that whole, you know, before the big cities and stuff, we were out there getting stuff done. So I like to try to tap in to the um, fight or flight mechanism and then try to get myself to be a little bit more in the fight. Some athletes are different. They don't need to get riled up and they like being calmed down, but I found it kind of almost like you said, meditative to like almost thank everyone I had to thank and then kind of get into animal mode after that. But you couldn't do that. You couldn't do that unless you loved yourself and you loved where you were and what you're doing with your life and you loved your new body and you loved, yeah. Again, I know it's corny, but. No, no, I think it's, I, well, I think, you know, that's, that's the funny part about getting into a starting gate, right? Is that you have to figure out what works for you. And, and that fight or flight, it can be crushing. I know that I've been crushed by that in the, in the past where I get there and I think, I am so nervous. This is what I'm supposed to do. I, you know, and I've had, I've had days, especially like I went a year and a half when I was a kid where I didn't finish a race, Ooh. 14 to 15, couldn't finish oh. a race, oh. you know, blowing out like second gate, like you're in, you're out, you're done. And, and, and the, the biggest thing was, was trying to make peace with that for me. And, and, and trying to, for me, it was, it was about mastery. It was about trying to master myself and knowing, knowing that when I got into that gate, there was the that there was that chemical rush there, there was that primal chemical rush that is fight or flight it's like okay it's heightening your senses it's it's constricting your capillaries it's doing 
all of that stuff and, and knowing, okay, it's coming. Can I master it? Can I master myself? Can I, can I perform in this moment, even though I think that it could be, it could be crushing, you know? And, and I think that that's, that, that's the cool part is trying to figure out, you know, maybe you talk about a Zen part of it, like this is the Zen part. This is not. And, and that's, that, that to me is the cool part about being an athlete, but it also is the thing that translates into the rest of my life, right? That Chris, we're so lucky to have experienced the whole athlete thing and, and to be so self-aware that we did able to collect some stuff. You know, there's kids out there that are scared to ask their big brother to borrow a hockey stick or they don't want to ask uh, one of the boys in class to, to come to the dance with them or something. Or there's a whole bunch of people out there that never, ever get to tap into the fight or flight. And they've never actually been there and they never actually get to the starting line. Like, we're so lucky to be able to experience that. And part of me wants to let every person out there experience that. And, and especially the young kids, like, you know, like, you, you just got to get to that starting gate. Once you get to the starting gate, that's more than half the battle. Mm-hmm. And then you got to get back to it. Yeah. For second run of GS. It really is. Yeah. You got to keep coming back to the starting gate. You got to keep coming back. And it's a, you know, it, it is a learning process and it's a, it's a experiential thing, this thing called life, right? I mean, we go out and some things are good. Some things aren't. Sometimes you crash and break your arm and, and uh, break your face and do all these things. And you don't want to do that. But, but that's. Do you, find that do you find that your adaptability by being an athlete and like, you know, taking all these different uh, situations, do you find it's helped in the last three, four months? It has. It has. No, I know. Yes. I know. It has in a lot of ways. You know, I mean, I think that the, that sort of globally it has, right? That I think, okay, there, there are opportunities here. Like, how can we, how can we, and, and, preface this by saying I am supremely lucky that I have, you know, I have all the Maslow's things, you know, it's like, I have the roof over my house, I, over my head. I have, I have food. I have, I have that, that kind of stuff. You know, I, I access the clean water, all of those things. I don't have to worry about that stuff right now, but it also is how, how do I, how do I come out of this better? How do I, how do I find an, an objective? How can I, uh, yeah, I, I have a friend who, it was funny, she was saying, talking to her, her high school son who, who was a lacrosse player and, and did something to his leg so he couldn't play that year. And, uh, and he was kind of mopey about it. And she said, well, you know, you're going get to get a whole lot better with your left hand now. It's like, you got an opportunity, like, let's, let's make this happen. Let's do something. And, 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 and that really is it. But, but it also is, I think the athlete part for me is being willing to stretch, being yes. willing to try something yeah. like this to say, Hey, let's make this happen. Let's, let's do something. Let's get these voices out there. Adversity isn't so bad in that situation. It, it's not, it's not, you know, I see so many people in the last three, four months, Chris, that haven't had a lot of, a lot of it in their lives. And I, you can see that they're, they're confused and they, they, it's just been so confusing for them. And I just feel lucky to have that athletic background to be able to deal with chaos and be able to deal with uncertainty and be able to deal with rumors and hearsay and, 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 and hype, you know, just to bring the hype down a little bit. 
Well, it's kind of like what we had to do with our accident as well, right? That that I think having been an athlete was was a huge benefit there because you know what good pain is, you know what bad pain is. Yeah. You know that you're willing to to sort of struggle. You know that you can struggle. And you know that I remember going out and mono skiing and doing the first day and thinking, I'm not sure if I'm ever going to be able to make a turn in this thing. Mm. And then coming back the next day and being a hundred percent better and going, okay, I know that I need to just come back and I'm going to get better. And obviously, I mean, you want to be strategic about it and you want to work hard and, and all of those things, but, but, it's it's not giving up when you when you're not good at it initially i i used to think silly things like oh the generation beneath me isn't as committed as we are oh the generation beneath me doesn't see things through to the end like we did but i was just talking to the wrong people and they're in the wrong and every generation we always do it we always find a way to make it happen you know it's part about being human and i think adversity with the injuries that we've had um just enables us to maybe even a little bit more adaptable and help other people realize that change is going to happen, but you, you're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. Well, change is the only guarantee, right? And I, I often talk about the idea for me, it's, it's we get married to the emotional side of, of wanting to be successful, mm. you know, and, and it's sort of this idea of like, oh, when I do that, then I'm successful then I'm successful. And, and you assume that that's static, that, that once you're successful, it's there. And that to me is a complete mirage where the idea of change is, is the only guarantee, right? Change is going to happen. And, and, and letting go of the emotional part of going, oh, well, this changed. And if it changed, then that means that I failed because I'd been successful and now it's changed. And now I have to figure out another way but embracing sort of the, the fluid nature of life is that, that we're going in a different direction and that there are new opportunities and we've got to figure out what those opportunities are in order to be fulfilled, really. And we never stop because if we stop, then we're dead. I mean, you want to, you want to ride your bike until you're 70 years old. Yeah. <laughs> I can. I'm going to, I'm going to eat the right foods and I'm going to, you know, make sure that I take care of my body and I'm going to, make sure that um, my sponsors are still there to support me. Um, but yeah, I'm going to do whatever it takes to get to 70. And that's adapting and changing. And will I do the same things at age 70 that I'm doing now? No, <laughs> I'll still be riding. But the thing is, if you stop, yes, you're not likely to get there at no. 70. That's the thing. And I think that that's, I was at the gym one time and there, you know, I mean, you're at the gym and you're just doing your thing and, you know, you're, you're in between sets or whatever. And so you're just like listening in on conversations, checking people out in the, you know, I mean, this is, this is what you do. And, and these two guys were near me and, and one guy said to the other guy said, yeah, my doctor or whatever, somebody said to me that uh, the best way to be in shape is to not get out of shape. It sounds so obvious, right? It's like, yeah, that seems you've nailed it right there. But the thing is, we go we go through those cycles where you you're in shape, and then you're like, oh, I don't feel like doing that anymore. And then you're out of shape, and then you get back into shape. And it's like, if you don't get out of shape, if it's part of your life, yeah, 
And I think that's what you're talking about is it really is this integration with your life. It's part of your passion. It's part of your identity. It's part of your pursuit and your purpose. And you're I thinking, think okay, purpose. It really is. It's a, it's a big part of it, isn't it? Having that purpose. As human, and, beings, as human beings, one of the first things that we ever ask ourselves, or ask our parents or ask the universe is what is my purpose? Yeah. What is this life? Like, what is this? You know? And purpose is huge, man. Like, I'm glad I got a chance to have a second chance at having a purpose. And that was when I broke my back. I had a second chance to develop a purpose and to, to pursue it. Do you think that you're a different person now than you would have been had you not had your accident? 60-40. Okay. I think I got 60% of the old good Stacy, but I got 40% of the new new good Stacy. I think I got rid of the other 40%. that was like dragging me down. Maybe not wanting to, um, maybe not wanting to admit that I wasn't using my natural talent. Um, there's nothing worse than someone wasting their natural talent. And I do think I wasted some natural talent in my teenage years. So I was very thankful to get a second chance. Well, I think in a lot of ways, that's the definition of being a teenager too, right? And so there's not necessarily, there might be, you know, I mean, I think that that's the interesting, it's the interesting sliding doors kind of question, right? It's like, so, you know, cause I get asked that all the time and I get asked and you probably get asked this too. Like if you could go back and change that the accident, you know, change it so that the accident didn't happen, would you do it? Do you ever get asked that? Yeah. Oh yeah. And it's something that you try to answer as honestly as possible. Yeah. Would you? No. I would not trade the life I have for anything else. I would not trade the lessons. I would not trade the broken back. I would not trade anything. No, I keep it the way. If you could go back and change anything. I wouldn't. I mean, the thing is, it's a great unknown, right? We could project onto, well, if, if I hadn't had my accident, this is what I would have done. And this is who I would be and, and this and that. And, you know, the thing is, our lives take so many twists and turns, and there are just so many changes in our lives and so many things that we think are what we need to do. Yeah. That then we get there and go, oh, that wasn't what I was supposed to do at all. And sometimes undoing that can be, can be, far more detrimental than having having a traumatic physical injury i just i'm glad that for some some strange reason i found in that first couple months that if i just had a laser sharp focus on what i was doing at that time that i could achieve what i wanted to achieve and that was like learning how to get in and out of the chair doing a wheelie learning how to go downstairs and then just always applying that even to like right now to this day always applying that to like okay that's got to be part of me i've got to be able to, to make it happen so that I can continue to feel like me and act like me. And I don't think it's selfish, but we talked about earlier, got to love yourself. Well, you got to love yourself, but it sounds like you, you, the laser focus is something that's important, but it's also about continuing to learn something new. I mean, you get to be, you know, world champion skier, uh, you know, probably best guy out there on four wheels right now. At least that's what it, at least that's what the video I saw said. And, and, and you think, okay, well, that's it. And, and if that's it, then that's really it. Right. I mean, it's, it's done. It's, it's part of history. 
as opposed to the part of the future. And so that's what I'm taking out of what you're saying is that there's that you have to have that focus on the next thing. What's the next skill that you're going to do? Yeah. And I think, you know, 15 year old Stacy got really lazy. I don't think 15 year old Stacy had that laser sharp focus. So it was a good thing that I was able to, to get a good smack in the butt. Like I said, 60, 40, like my cockiness hasn't changed. I've always been cocky. I've always liked to intermix humor to everything I do. So that hasn't changed. Being hyper competitive, that hasn't changed. But it's the other part of me, like the part of me to realize that there's more than one person here that's trying to do the exact same thing I'm doing. They're here to do the same thing I'm doing. I learned about that. I learned about um, really having the ability to uh, be humble in some moments to then translate to bigger areas. Um, you, you mentioned it before. Sometimes you got to be small to grow tall. And sometimes I had to bring myself in and I didn't have the ability to be small at 15. But after breaking my back, I had that ability to, to get small and then learn and then grow and be tall. Can I ask one question? We'll get out on this, I think. The cockiness question. You said you were always cocky. Yeah. What does cockiness mean? Uh, I think it's people that don't have that extra little bit of, put it this way. I don't think anyone that has cockiness came up with the word cocky. I think that's someone observing someone and say, whoa, that person's pretty cocky, you know, or they got a certain swag. So, um, is it the same as confidence or is it different? No, it's the same. It's the same. And we as humans, for some reason, we love to beat each other down. If, if I don't have something that that person has, maybe I make fun of that person because I don't have it. So I think what happened is somewhere along the line, someone, someone with a lot of confidence rubbed somebody the wrong way that didn't have much confidence, and they started labeling people like that cocky. Was it 500 years ago? I don't know, but you know, it's happened now that people, oh, they, they want to tear, I don't know, you tell me, I've had people want to tear me down verbally because I'm more dedicated to my sport, I look after myself, I take care of myself. So let's make Stacy look small so I look bigger. And, and oh, Stacy's cocky or he's got a big head. But I think it's just confidence. Yeah. What do you I, think? I, you know, it's, it's one of those that I wonder. I think that they are, they are closely tied, the idea of cockiness and, and confidence. And I think, that, I think that they come from the same root. That, that you can't, I mean, well, I mean, that's, that's a funny thing. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's an interesting question because I think that cockiness is, is more, is more visual, you know, is, is something that you can see. You can see that someone is cocky. You don't necessarily see that someone is confident, but I think that there also is, there are people who can be cocky without necessarily being confident as well. I know. And that's the difference. Being cocky with nothing to back it up isn't so cool. But nothing will make you look stupider or nothing will make you look more like a poser or a farce if you have cockiness and then you can't back it up. I got my cockiness and my swagger, I think, from my dad. Because my dad could always back up whatever he said. But then you think about the role models that we were presented in the 70s. Muhammad Ali? Mm -hmm. Hello? I'm so bad, I make medicine sick. I mean, if that's not cocky, come on. Uh, Evil Knievel, that whole 60s, the whole, you know, women's ride and the, the black athlete movement and all that stuff. That was full confidence 
those are people that I grew up idolizing. Like it was a big deal. Like my dad's like, you're going to stay up tonight till 11 o'clock. Cause we're going to, we're going to watch Muhammad Ali fight tonight. And he's fighting this guy named Leon Spinks. This is like 1974. There were certain things I could stay up for and ha didn't have no curfew. If evil can evil was on TV <laughs> or if Muhammad Ali was on TV, I could stay up as late as I wanted. That is awesome. They were cocky. They had swagger. They backed it up. They're, they're also showmen too, Chris. Huge showmen. I mean, they were, I read something about Muhammad Ali where he was talking about, where they were talking about when he, uh, Oh, I'm trying to think of the guy that it, when he first won the heavyweight uh, heavyweight championship, it was actually in Maine. And I'm trying to think of the guy who was uh, uh, who he fought. And the guy was just he was a monster. I mean, just an absolute monster. And Ali came in into the press conference and just went crazy. Just I'm going to kill you. I'm going to, you know, and it's and, and they said that his like his heart rate went through the roof he's like at like 200 beats per minute like he is a he's a maniac which is exactly what he wants this guy to think and then the press conference ended and it went Phew, and his heart rate came right down and he went right back to normal and it was it was it was the showman party was it was he was putting on an act and he was he was convincing this guy like you don't want to fight me because you don't know what I might do because I am crazy. And that's where some of my joy came from doing all those jumps back in 94 95. I wanted to show you guys that I was bonkers and that you guys were like, "Oh, we don't know what Cole's going to do. He might crash, he might win, we don't know." But there's an art to there's an art to being in the lineup at, at the start gate. There's an art to that. There's a way to make people get off their game. There's a way to, to intimidate people. There's, there's an art form to all of that, Chris. And it's for other people and it's for you too. It really is because, because I think that you perform great when you, when you are cocky and I, uh, yeah, you talk about the cockiness with mono skiing. I actually told, I don't know if he was still around when you were around a guy named Rich St. Dennis at my first nationals. He, he was an LW 10. So he was in my class. He was on the ski team when I went to my first nationals and I told him that I was going to be the fastest mono skier in the world. And he looked at me, he's like, ah, yeah, well, you, you know, you might want to learn how to ski first. That might be a good, good first step. But, I, but I had that cockiness. Like I knew that I would get there. And, and, and it was, it, it wasn't necessarily something, it wasn't something I conjured up. It was just something that it was just like, it, it just happened. It was just, it, 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 it materialized within, in my, in my brain. Plus we're, we're North American too, Chris. And we have this whole North American, the new world, cowboys, big frontiers. I can do anything. You know, that's part of our life too, is to bring that bigness and stuff. It's, it's, it's tough to say that you're going to be the best in the world when you haven't actually done it. But if you can feel it and you know it, and don't forget some of the cockiness that we had and some of the swagger that we had in the nineties, if it wasn't for that cockiness and if it wasn't for the swagger, we would have never attracted the interest of mainstream media. I think that's exactly it. And we never would have tried to do what we did. It gets you through the door. We presented ourselves to the media like athletes first and all the other trimmings that came along with that. 
journalists love good quotes. They love one-liners. They love that type of stuff. And when you're cocky, you can deliver that. And our, Chris, our generation really, like I, I get really stoked on thinking how we broke the bubble for media. I really do get stoked on the 90s and what we did in the 90s. To, in fact, I don't even think sometimes, I don't think there's enough mainstream media coverage now of people with disabilities compared to what we were doing back then. We had to break it though, didn't we? Yeah. I mean, we had to get noticed. We had to, you know, in a world that's taught not to stare, we had to be like, nope, come here, stare. I mean, that, that quote from that guy who was, who was doing the commentary, it's like, oh, he just cleared the jump coming out of the forest. It's like, oh, this is legit. We had to be able to, find, to get them and, and I think that that's, that's our biggest issue, right? Is the thing is that, that we have to get them to see beyond what they, the limitations that they perceive in us to see us, but also to see themselves, you know? And I think that that's, that's where, you know, I mean, there's so much separation going on in this world race and, and everything. And it's like, can we see ourselves in somebody else? Can we see ourselves in that struggle? Can we see ourselves in that greatness? And, uh, you know, as a, as a Paralympian, I think in some ways, like, especially in the summertime, it was exhausting for me to go compete because I'd lived and died with, with every race when I watched the Olympics on TV, because as a human being, when somebody does something spectacular, it's like, I did that. It's like, well, you didn't do that. It's like, yeah, but I'm a human being too. I have that potential. You know, it's, it's, we, it's a collective, it's a collective human being thing. That makes hair on my arms stand up when you say stuff like that, dude. See, that's that weird pixie dust stuff I'm talking about. Woo! But that's the stuff that we had to do. And, and the thing is, I think that we have to keep doing it. Are the sports organizations allowing a next generation of athletes to be cocky? We had individuals back then. We had, we had the Meninos, we had the, the Wills, the Waddells, the Kohuts, the Alexander Spitz, the, the Mushkis. It just seems now that the Paralympics is promoted as a whole. It's, I, th I think, I think there, there, is, there is a challenge and there, always, there are always characters. I mean, I look at, like on the US team, I look at like an Andrew Kirka or one of those guys who, uh, who I mean, his biggest thing with the coaches, he always had the speed. His coaches were like, if you can dial it back a little bit and actually find the finish line, you're going to be fast, you know? And I think, I think there are, there are those kinds of people um, who are, who are doing it. And, and, and it's, it is, it is interesting that they get a little bit more exposure and they're more on television right now. I don't see a five page article in outside magazine. I don't see a three page article in bike magazine. I don't see, um, a, a picture of you in, the, in, in a copy of People Night. I don't see that as much as I did back then. And it's not for not looking. I'm looking. I'm trying to find it. I seem like we had better, better mainstream penetration in, in, in different media back then. It's, you know, it's funny that you say that because I think that one of my biggest struggles in being an athlete was wondering what my job was. You know, was my job to to train and compete or was my job to tell the story? And you know what? The latter was the one where I actually got paid was telling my story, whether it was in front of a group of people or whether it was in the media, but it also was the most beneficial part. Yeah. Like, I mean, people magazine for me, it's when I get introduced, 
it is still the last thing that they say. And, and they can say, you know, 13 Paralympic medals, you know, I mean, I got a, an unsung hero of compassion award from the Dalai Lama, you know, from the Dalai wow. Lama. And then people are like, People Magazine, oh, People Magazine. And you're like, that's part of the game. Part of the game is that we are, we have to find a way to tell that story. When I climbed the mountain, when I climbed Kilimanjaro, because we weren't on television really when we were competing in the Paralympics. And I said, if you don't tell the story, it didn't happen. That's the power of the media. We are, we know the power of the media. Yeah. And, and, and I think that that's, I, it, it's an, it's an interesting question. And I definitely think that there are people who are doing it well now, but I also think that, that it's it, things, things change, you know, things change to a certain extent and things change when, uh, you know, when things get a little bit better sometimes, you know, I think that, I still haven't heard of anyone that's doing the Paralympics that has a full-blown agent. Do you know of anyone that's got a full-blown agent? Yeah, no, there are definitely people who have, who have agents now. I mean, certainly in the U.S. And there are more sponsors and things like that. And I think that it, it's, it's funny because it is generational, right? And you look at, like, I look at the people who went before me and think like the Martinsons and those kinds of guys who went before me and they, they, they made it possible for us to compete. And, and, and as things get better, like I look at, I look at some of the professional sports and, and some of these like baseball players and things like that, where they look at it and go, I'm getting paid. Like I get paid to do my sport and, and they get separated from the audience, the people who are actually paying for it. And, and there's a beauty to being part of a peripheral sport because there's a responsibility to push your sport to grow it, you know, and, and you look at it and you and I were competitors, but at the same time, we were teammates in a lot of ways in, in pushing our sport, making it happen. Oh, I used to think it was okay. Well, you know, I'm a little bit competitive too. I'm like, well, we all got that. Okay. So I'm going to call Delta airlines and see if Delta airlines wants to do an in-flight uh, me for the magazine. And okay, well, someone's done that. And then, Oh, don't forget, let's not forget Johnny D. Right. Come on, Johnny Davis, man. Now, there is a guy who was an agent, athlete, comedian, all in one. <laughs> it's totally he true. He showed us how to market. You got to admit, that guy could market back in the night. He really could. And, but, but that is a component of it. You know? And I think it's, it gets harder as, as the sport gets, gets harder. I mean, you get, you get more, uh, you know, the sport continues to get better. It requires more time. Uh, but, but that, to me, continues to be the question is what is your, what is your job? Is your job to promote the sport? Is your job to compete in the sport? Is your job to do, to do both of the things? And, and that's your responsibility to, to move it forward. Because it's hard. People ask us, well, what are you guys doing, Whistler? Like, what's Whistler all about? I'm like, you know what we do in Whistler? And I don't mean to sound cocky, but this is the truth. In Whistler, just like every other resort around the world, the people that live in the resort, what we do is we show the rest of the world how to have fun. <laughs> no, it's true. That's all we do in this town. We just invite the world to come here and we'll show you how to have fun. You want to go river rafting? You want to go skiing? You want to go mountain biking? You know, we know you're working 50, uh, 50 uh, weeks a year. We know this is your two weeks to have some fun. So come on, come have fun. And we're just discovering that now, right now, with coming out of COVID-19, we have to re, there's actually plans here. How do we re-teach people to get back out to the mountains to recreate? Yes, there's going to be a big surge, but how do we get more people to come back out? And 
I think, you know, our roles in the 90s with, with being Paralympians and athletes, I think we fit those roles perfectly at that time. I'm just a little bit worried that there's not going to be a next version of John Davis in five years to help the sport go to that next level or to help the athletes get more money or to help them get paid more. I think, I think that's, that's the problem in being, you know, in, in looking back, right. That, that you say, Oh, well, our, our generation. And I think that that's, that's, that's a problem. I think that, I think there will be somebody who will do that. There will be somebody who will blow our minds. And, and I look forward to seeing that. I unfortunately have to get you out of here now, but let's end with your thought on come to Whistler to have fun. This is what we do. We teach the world how to have fun. And I think watching you, watching you going downhill, I can't think of anything other than he's just having a blast. So thank you for doing what you do and teaching all of us. And I mean, thank you so much, Chris, for the, um, thanks so much for the recognition. You know, you, you get in magazines and you get in all that stuff, but to have one of your peers say that you're doing the right thing and you're out there contributing, it means a lot coming from you, Chris. It really does. You're welcome. And thank you. Thanks for coming on.